Biathlon is a unique Olympic event. It challenges participants with opposing athletic endeavors in a singular competition. It combines the heart-pumping aerobic aspects of cross-country skiing matched with the intense focus of precision marksmanship. Two diametrically opposing forces testing every ounce of physical and mental strength of athletes. Welcome to Heartbeat, the U.S. Biathlon podcast. I'm your host, Tom Kelly. With each episode, Heartbeat brings you insights into this fascinating sport. The season is now over and somehow everyone made it through a year of pandemic. Now, sites are getting firmly focused on next season's Olympics in Beijing. Today on Heartbeat, we will take you to the heart of the Adirondacks to meet Olympian Maddie Fanoff at her training base in Lake Placid, not far from her childhood home in Old Forge, New York. Maddie will take us back to the IBU Cup this past season to relive some career-best results. She'll also wind back to her own experiences at Pyeongchang and talk about the mental challenges of being a world-class athlete. With the growing focus across the sport of biathlon on climate change, Maddie will also talk about her advocacy role as an ambassador with Protect Our Winners. It's a fun episode packed with insights. Let's now join Olympian Maddie Fanoff on Heartbeat. Hey, big welcome to Maddie Fanoff to Heartbeat, the U.S. Biathlon podcast. Listeners, I know that you can't see this, but Maddie is sitting outside in front of a beautiful forest in Lake Placid, New York. Maddie, thank you so much for joining us on Heartbeat. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Well, it's been fun to talk to athletes all season long, and we're going to talk a little bit more about your season and a little bit more about your past. But I know that one thing that has been a challenge for everybody the last year is the pandemic and particularly athletes with having to change up all that they do. How has it impacted you and your training? Yeah. So last year during the training season, I was based in Lake Placid along with Claire Egan and Chloe. and Honestly, it impacted us in the way where we just weren't getting that group environment. I was lucky enough to have a couple teammates in the area to train with, but we just didn't have our coaches in town. We didn't have training groups that were bigger than two people. Um, so that took a toll. And just the fact that I was stayed in Lake Placid the whole summer instead of in normal years, we kind of go to Vermont for a couple of weeks or over to Oregon or wherever, Utah. It was definitely more of a mental struggle last season. But for someone who loves the outdoors and grew up in the Adirondacks, though, at least you were sequestered in a beautiful place. Yeah, definitely. I can't complain too much about the location. So, Maddie, let's get into the this past season, which was an interesting one for you. I know that it had its highs and its lows, but you got back to the World Cup uh, to uh, kick off the season, Contiolati. Can you walk us through that? return to the World Cup for you, and then we'll go on and talk about the IBU Cup. Yeah, it was definitely exciting. It felt like I hadn't been away from the World Cup that long, but then once I looked it up, I was like, oh, wow, I haven't raced the World Cup since the season before the Olympics. Um, So it has been a while. Um, And so, yeah, it was just fun to be back and to kind of be at that highest level along with the teammates that I've been training with. And yeah, obviously it was a little bit different since there weren't any spectators to cheer us on, but it was still fun to be racing under the lights in Contilati and kind of be back in that atmosphere. 
Can you give people an idea of the level of competition at the World Cup? It had been four years for you since you'd been in that environment. But what is that competition level like at the World Cup? How intense is that? It's definitely very intense. I guess I would compare it to like, if since I'm a regular on the IBU Cup, when I go to those competitions, I feel very confident and comfortable with where I am. And my nerves don't really get in the way that much. But once I step onto the World Cup, since I haven't had a lot of experience there, I've had maybe half a dozen or a dozen starts in the last however many years. So it definitely is a little bit more intimidating. And just knowing that these these athletes in my mind are just so much better than me um, can be scary. And yeah, so it's definitely the nerves play a bigger toll on myself when I'm at the World Cup, for sure. The IBU put together a COVID plan to consolidate some events on the World Cup and I believe the IBU Cup as well and to operate in a bubble, which overall was really pretty successful. Yes, I know that you did get COVID once you came home uh, in the spring, but during the season, did you have a sense that uh, you were in a in a good and a safe environment as you traveled around? Definitely. It felt very safe. We with US Biathlon, along with the IBU, had a lot of protocols to um, make sure that we weren't in big groups. Uh, we essentially just had one roommate uh, that was our close contact. At all, like we could wear, we wouldn't have to wear a mask around them in our hotel room. And then besides that, it was masks everywhere, um, socially distancing, and yeah, it was definitely not as sociable as most seasons, but. If that's what we have to do to stay healthy, it worked for me, at least, and most of our team, I'm pretty sure. It was interesting to watch, and a number of winter sports did the year very successfully. FIS had a pretty successful year with uh, cross-country and all of its other sports as well. So after Contialanti, you went back to the tour that has been more or less your home the last few years with the IBU Cup, and you had some great success first in Arbor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that was exciting. <laughs> it was definitely the first time where I crossed the well, it was the first time I ever crossed the finish line and I saw a number 1 next to my name and I and I wasn't like bib number 1. <laughs> I was like bib 20 something. So that was definitely the like most exciting and surprising part of that day, I would say. Tell us where Arbor is uh, in Germany. It is right on the border of the Czech Republic, I believe. And it's beautiful. There's some great mountains in that region. They typically have a good amount of snow. Like when we were there, that it was just dumping snow the whole time. So yeah, it was nice. So you finished fourth in Arbor. Did that give you a sense that uh, you were on a good track still? Yeah, that was kind of going into the season. I So before any races happened, going into the season, I was very confident in my ability to ability to perform well at least on the IBU cup my goals were to get in the top 6 at least once maybe land on the podium that was kind of like um in the in past years that was kind of a reach goal like oh maybe i would get there but i wasn't super confident and this season was the was the first season where i went into the the race season knowing that i could do that if i 
had everything go perfectly, I guess. So yeah, having that result very, very much solidified the fact that I was like, okay, the training this summer did work. <laughs> I just need to put all the pieces together at the right time. And you can't worry too much about what happens in November. <laughs> so you went on then to Bresno and Slovakia and took it up yet another notch, finishing third, a career first podium for you. Great experience for you. And I think you were the only non-German in the top five in that event. But what was that like to get that one more place higher from fourth up to third and to be standing on that podium? That one, I mean, it was amazing. It definitely didn't feel as surreal as the Arbor result did. And I think that might have to do with the fact that the race format was um, a short individual. And I know that I perform well in those events. So I wasn't as shocked, I guess, to see that I would land on the podium um, with one miss. Uh, Whereas with the sprint, I was more surprised, I guess, to see that I would be at the top of the result with that race. But anyway, yeah, the landing on the podium was amazing and it was definitely kind of a nice end of the season to realize like, oh, okay, like that it wasn't a fluke, I guess, where I placed fourth earlier. I, I can be at the top consistently if, like I said, <laughs> if the pieces come together all at once. A lot of fans will follow the results and they'll see what you did in those events, but they really don't know the the true highs and lows of that season, this past season. You also had challenges this past season. I know you came home, you had COVID, uh, but can you talk about any of the struggles that you faced this year that you had to overcome? Yeah, I would say for me, the worst uh, or like the lowest part of the season was the early season in November in December when I was over on the World Cup, I just didn't feel like myself on my skis. I was just really tired and I felt like I was not recovering. And it was really disappointing and nerve wracking to kind of go out every day and just have my legs be totally flooded after like 10 minutes of skiing. <laughs> and so that was definitely like a low moment. And that was the reason why I came home early um, and didn't stay over for Christmas and stuff. Cause I was like, okay, you know what? Like, I don't want to be sitting here, not racing and just feeling tired and honestly like crap. <laughs> and so I was like, you know, I'd rather just go home and at least be in Lake Placid and get to see some family and friends and kind of just do a reset and try to get that thought of, oh my God, is my season going to be totally ruined? Cause I feel horrible right now out of my system and just be like, okay, we're just resetting. We're going to recover, do a training block and go back over to the IBU cup and just kind of press the reset. So I was really glad I did that because that helped a lot, not only for like physically, cause I think I really did need a break. Um, otherwise I don't, I think I would have just not had any good results later in the season if I just kept pushing through it. And then it was also a really good break mentally to kind of just get out of the COVID bubble racing internationally and that whole stress and just kind of coming back to my home and kind of just getting back into my happy place. We're doing this interview with Maddie in mid-April. And Maddie, as you reflect back on the season now, what are the things that most stick in your mind? Uh, Was it a positive experience overall for you? Yeah, overall, it was positive. It definitely was a much of a roller coaster, uh, more so than past season. I w- past seasons, I would say it just felt like the 
I don't know. I just felt like there'd be some days where I felt great and had a great result, like fourth or third or in the top 20 or something. And then some days where I just didn't feel like myself at all. And my scheme was just really slow. And I, I didn't really understand why. So it definitely was a very much up and down type of season. But to like looking back on it overall, it was a positive uh, season. And I think it was a good sort of like stepping stone into this Olympic season. Let's step back in time. And you were, you moved to Old Forge, New York mm-hmm. when you were young, and that was really where you grew up in the sport. How did you get into sport overall? And then we'll work our way up to you getting into biathlon. Yeah. So before I moved to Old Forge, my family and I lived in Seneca, South Carolina. And at the time, um, my mother was a swim coach. And so she got us into swimming pretty young. So I was a swimmer before I even saw snow. So uh, that was kind of how I got into sport in general from my mom. And we swam down there competitively. And then when we moved to Old Forge, it's a very small town in upstate New York, and there are no swimming pools. And so my mom uh, was definitely kind of bummed that we couldn't continue competing in swimming. But uh, she kind of I'm very thankful for my parents because they wanted us to be active and in a small town in upstate New York, they didn't want their kids to be sitting around inside during the winter and being miserable and hating the snow. And so the first winter we lived there, they just threw, they just threw skis on us and we, none of us had any idea what we were doing. So we all went out to the golf course together and just stumbled on our skis and, uh, kind of try to figure that out. And then we joined the local ski club. Um, but I did lots of sports in high school. I played soccer. I ran cross country. I ran track and field. I played softball sometimes and skied and did biathlon, obviously. So we were very active. (laughs) So did you take to cross country skiing pretty quickly as a young girl? I think so. I don't obviously remember too much of the early years, but I do remember that I loved being outside and I loved the snow and I'm very competitive. And so if you threw me into a race, I was going to try my hardest to just cross the finish line and beat however many people I could. And I think my parents saw that and were just like, okay, we'll let her, like, she'll do whatever she wants. Like if she's still enjoying it, she'll keep racing. Um, so yeah, I definitely enjoyed it as a kid. So how did you make the transition into biathlon and discover this unique aspect of what you'd been doing on cross-country skis? So at the time I was 15 and luckily there is a biathlon range in Old Forge where there really aren't that many in upstate New York. I don't think there's a handful. And so we were lucky that we had targets in the area and there was already a biathlon club but there just wasn't really anyone involved anymore. And so they were trying to get more people involved and they wanted more young people involved. And so they came to our Nordic ski team, the high school ski team, and invited us to come up to the range once a week to try biathlon if we wanted. And if we enjoyed shooting, then we could come every week. I think that's how it worked. Basically, I just got invited to learn how to shoot. And then I thought that it was cool and challenging and different. And so I kind of just kept showing up and wanted to be better because I was 
horrible when I first started. <laughs> I was so bad. I have a distinct memory of one of the first biathlon races I ever did in Jericho, Vermont, and I missed 18 out of 20 targets. And I had to ski however many penalty loops that is. And I remember my dad did the calculation. Wow, you skied this many extra kilometers. Good job. Thanks, dad. <laughs> dead last. Yeah, dead last. <laughs> but it started to come along for you, didn't it? Yeah, I don't really remember when I, I, I think it was when I was a senior in high school. So must have been 17, 18. When I, I saw, I like had made friends at that point from, other biathletes because I would go to training camps with Algus Shalna. And so I had a lot of friends like Sean Doherty and I would go to camps together, Brian Halligan. And I started seeing that they were making these teams to compete internationally. And I thought that that was so cool. And I didn't even know that was a thing. And so I saw them traveling. I think they went to over Chiliac the previous winter. And so I remember seeing their photos and just being like so jealous that they got to travel to Europe to race. And so my senior year of high school, I was like, okay, I'm going to like train and try to be better so I can make that team. And I went to trials in Minnesota with my dad and I did pretty well. Actually, I was on the podium a couple times for the youth category, but I just missed the team by like one point or like one spot. And so I was pretty upset or I think that season was when it was in Austria but regardless I was upset that I didn't make it and was pretty bummed but I'm glad I'm like in retrospect I'm glad that I didn't qualify the first time that I tried because that really pushed me when I graduated high school to kind of figure out what I wanted to do and for some reason I just like really wanted to make that team (laughs) and so that drove me to hold off on college and look into how I could continue training professionally. And you did make that team. Yeah. So the following year I trained, uh, at the time at May winter sports center up in Fort Kent, Maine. And that was my first time ever focusing all of my energy onto one thing because in high school I did everything, um, and it was just spread out pretty thin. And so that's the first time I put all my energy into just biathlon and I qualified for the, the youth junior world team that season. And I was so bummed that it was in uh, Presque Isle that year. I was like, oh man, I finally qualified to race internationally and it's just an hour away from where I'm living right now. <laughs> um, but I, it was good because I think that got rid of a lot of the nerves surrounding traveling and sickness and that kind of stuff. Um, and yeah, I, I raced junior worlds that year and performed very well considering I had no expectations whatsoever. Um, placed for anyone who doesn't know I placed fourth in the first race the women's sprint and I was the only competitor to hit all of my targets out of anyone in any of the fields and so I was shocked and I think everyone was pretty shocked they're like who is this person Um, and then I also had gotten an eighth place I think in I think it was the individual but I'm not positive and so that was kind of when the national team just like picked me up from there And so that took you eventually onto the IBU Cup. Yes. Yep. Yep. So once you finally did get to Europe, what was that experience like as a, as a young woman? Like thinking back on my first trip, I can't really remember. I just remember being basically like a lost child. I was like in a group of athletes who 
were who had traveled before and kind of knew what they were doing so I was kind of just clinging on to all of them just like okay I'll just copy everything that you're doing and I was definitely really nervous about flying with a rifle internationally and just all that stuff and I remember the races I was excited and nervous and scared and didn't know what to expect and just felt like a like small fish in the sea of these athletes who were professionals in my mind. So yeah, it was definitely scary and intimidating at first. Let's fast forward up to the Olympics in 2018. And first of all, what was your pathway to make that Olympic team? Yeah. So my pathway I would say was, uh, I got named to the national team. I was on the X team for a while and competed well enough to move up into the B team, I think I was just kind of jumping around. Um, not, I don't think I made it to the A team quite yet, but so I was based in Lake Placid training with the national team, which was really helpful for my, um, training abilities and having those part like teammates who are a lot better than I was. And the facilities are amazing here, obviously. And so the path was just showing up and training every day and doing my, doing my job. And I think it hit me the season before the Olympics of like, oh, I, this is like a feasible goal of mine. Like I could, I could be one of the people that were, that's chosen. And so the season leading into the Olympics, the Olympic season, uh, that summer, I just remember thinking like trying so hard to not get injured or sick or anything, but I was struggling a lot with my health that year. And looking back on it now that I have a clearer uh, perspective. I definitely was overtrained and just was pushing through colds, which wasn't helpful. And I just get into getting strep throat and just not really being like smart at all. Cause I just had this tunnel vision of, I need to get the work done. If I don't train, I'm not going to be a better athlete. When in reality, it's, you need to train. And if you start feeling sick, you need to take a day off so that you don't have to take two weeks off. <laughs> so that season was definitely a struggle. I was sick almost every month for like a week at least. Um, so definitely that year was like the least amount of hours I ever trained. I was constantly sick. I was overtrained. Um, honestly, kind of miserable. <laughs> and then the trials uh, series was very close between Chloe Levins and I. Um, and that was very stressful and not fun. And um, I, it basically came down to the very last race between her and I for the Olympic team. And I thankfully pulled myself together and cleaned the individual that day and placed, I think, 11th on the IBU Cup. Emily Drazyecker had also cleaned that day and placed fifth. And so that cinched my spot onto the Olympic team as the alternate. And so when that happened, I finally just felt this like sense of relief, like, oh my God, finally I can just relax and not be so stressed out. And um yeah, that basically <laughs> for the Olympics itself, it was an amazing experience. And I'm thankful that I've had that experience, but it definitely was not what I had expected. I was excited to be the alternate and just kind of went into it not anticipating any races and just kind of being like the cheerleader of our team and just kind of just soaking up every Olympic experience I could. Um, and then uh, 
I ended up, I was finally like feeling good over there training. I was, um, kind of peaking in form. And so the team, uh, decided to put me in as, uh, the racer for one of, one of the slots for the 15 kilometer individual. And so I was very excited and I told everyone and I was just like, Oh, finally I can like be happy and excited that I get to have an Olympic start. Um, I can't wait. And then the morning of the race, we were racing in the evening. And so the morning of the race, I woke up with a scratchy throat and was kind of like, I don't think I would have noticed it if I wasn't at the Olympics. It was just very minor. Um, but I noticed it and just kind of made note like, okay, if it gets worse, like I'll let someone know, but for now I'll just drink tea and not freak out. Um, and I would have been fine, I think to race, but then the race got delayed till the next day because there were really strong winds and they didn't think it'd be fair to have the competition. And so once that happened, I talked to the team doctor and was like, just so you know, I have a scratchy throat because you kind of, as an athlete, have to tell the doctor pretty much immediately so that we can isolate you so you don't get the whole team sick. And he was kind of like, okay, like, don't worry too much about it. But since we have the resources downstairs, let's just go get a strep test done just to clear it out of the way. And I was like, all right, like didn't think anything of it. Went down, got a strep test. And within like a minute, usually the, the test takes like five minutes to get a result. Within like 30 seconds to a minute, it was positive for strep. And I just started crying, basically. It was pretty devastating because I was like, well, there's no chance I'm going to race because that's just how it works. You went through a lot of trauma after that, which you documented in your blog post, which I know took a lot of courage to put together. Oftentimes, people on the outside don't think about the mental health aspects of sport or what athletes go through, but that really took a toll on you for a period of time, didn't it? Yeah, definitely. I I just don't think I was necessarily like mature enough to have handled all of that stress and that situation alone. I was only 21, 22, and I wasn't working with a sports psychologist. I was just handling my own stuff on my own. And so looking back on it now, now I know that it is beneficial to have someone to talk to regardless of your mental health. Um, if it's, if you're feeling great or if you're feeling crappy, it was now I know going into this coming Olympic season, just to work with a sports psychologist and just be prepared for any sort of situation. But yeah, it was hard. (laughs) Well, I do encourage uh, listeners to go uh, search out Maddie's blog. It was called Invisible Battles, and it really is a good study on on what athletes go through. And I think I have to give you a lot of credit for you found your pathway. You didn't have someone just to go to, but you mapped your own pathway to find your way out of that. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. And I can touch on it briefly, but basically it was a case of... um, I was dealing with the trauma of, it was like the biggest dream I ever had was to race the Olympics and like having it in arm's reach of like, oh, I'm finally going to do it. And then having it ripped away was like so devastating for me. And I just got into like a pretty deep depression after that once I returned home and I didn't deal with it healthy, healthily at all. And it was a case where at least six months to like six to nine months later, I was still finding myself like 
randomly thinking about it and just sobbing and not being able to talk to anybody about the Olympics if it came up without crying or just lying to people. And so that was a sign where I was like, okay, clearly I need to go talk to someone to deal with this because I'm not dealing with it on my own. And so uh, luckily I was living in a city at that point and could, there were a lot of therapists around. And so that was what helped me. And I definitely encourage anyone who's going through any of their own issues to not worry about whether you think, because for me, I didn't seek help because I didn't think it was a big deal. I was like, oh, other people have worse problems than I do. Like it felt like such a privileged problem to have to be like, oh, I didn't race the Olympics. Boohoo. <laughs> and so that was kind of why I didn't seek help. And um, just being able to understand that, like, regardless of whether you think your problem is big, if it's affecting you, then you can go get help yourself. There's people that will help you. Well, Maddie, thanks for sharing that, sharing your story. And I want to make a very big shift of gears right now and talk talk (laughs) about climate. So, so, and, and again, uh, listeners can't see Maddie right now, but she is in the outdoors. It looks like a beautiful day in Lake Placid. And there are these wonderful evergreens behind you. Athletes, uh, it's it's fairly common for athletes, particularly outdoor athletes, to take a position on the environment and to really advocate for sustainability. And I know that's been a passion of yours. How did you first get into this and develop that love for the outdoors? So the love for the outdoors is a no-brainer for me, just growing up in the Adirondack Park and being an active kid outside all the time, I just grew to love the outdoors and I love animals. And so that was kind of just part of me. I don't, it's not something that I think about it just subconsciously. I just love the environment. And I got involved with climate action in 2016, I believe. Basically at that point I was living and training in the Olympic training center. And I felt like my entire identity was just athlete who was aspiring to be an Olympian. And I was having a lot of issues with that. I just kind of felt very privileged. And I felt like I wasn't really using my platform for anything besides promoting myself. And I just didn't like that. And so I was kind of on a mission to be like, okay, what do I want to be an advocate for? Like, should it be climate change? Or like, there's a number of things out there you can speak up about. And so I was kind of doing internet research and I found this nonprofit organization called Protect Our Winters. And I reached out to them because they had already had, they already created an athlete alliance in their organization, which was a bunch of professional athletes from there. It was mostly like big mountain skiers at that time. And I emailed them and I was pretty nervous because I was like, "Uh, I'm not a big mountain skier and I definitely don't have any sort of awards or I'm not very like special in my mind, like in terms of I'm not an Olympic medalist or anything crazy. I'm not Michaela Schifrin or whoever. And so I emailed them just like, I know I'm not these people, but if you'd like to have a biathlete on your alliance, I I would love to work with you guys. Like, let me know. And they they got back to me pretty quick and we set up a phone call and I chatted with them and have been working with them since, which has been great. I love their organization. Uh, Check them out if you feel like it. But basically with them, as being an athlete on the Alliance, we use our platform to share any of their um, 
like if they have a link to vote or to learn more about candidates or if there's like a project they're working on to um, whatever. There's a number of things that PAL works on. And so we shared those on our social media. And then besides that, I've also worked with them to go into schools pre-COVID to talk with students about uh, kind of like what climate change is and how they can get involved. And then I've also gone to colleges and done some volunteer meetings with adults over the age of 18. And with those, we kind of talk more about like the policies behind climate action and how the biggest thing we can do is register to vote and use that privilege to vote for climate action. And yeah, it's been uh, pretty great to work with them. And then also besides the speaking events, I've traveled with them to the Capitol and have spoken with lawmakers and congressmen to really discuss kind of my own personal experience with climate change and how it's affecting me and biathlon and the next generation of athletes and um, those stories. And then POW usually has a staff member there to kind of give them the spiel on what we're kind of there to talk about with which kind of bills or whatever laws and all the other nitty gritty stuff behind politics that I don't understand. And so it's kind of like a one-two punch, you like to say, like we give them the personal stories and then we give them, hey, here's the action you need to do to help make this different, if that makes sense. So you saw the power of an athlete like you opening doors in Washington. Yeah, definitely. It's been great. And it's definitely pretty fulfilling um, because the climate change movement is pretty depressing (laughs) at the moment. But we like to try to keep a light in there and know that we can make a difference. And nobody's a perfect environmentalist, but it's worse to sit on the sidelines and not do anything at all. So for the listeners out there, are there one or two things that you could suggest to them that they could do to really help this advocacy effort or things that they can do in their day-to-day life? Yeah, I would say in general, don't beat yourself up if you're like, oh, but I don't have an electric vehicle. I'm horrible for the environment. What it comes down to is nobody can be perfect. You're going to be slipping up a little bit and not going to have a totally zero carbon footprint. But what you can do, the most important thing you can do is register to vote and use that privilege to actually go out and vote, especially for midterms, midterm elections, um, and encouraging your friends to vote and register to vote. And then also Protect Our Winters has started to create like a volunteer organization, I guess. So if you're interested in becoming a volunteer with Protect Our Winters, you can go to their website they have a link somewhere on their page to sign up. And basically they're just kind of trying to have groups all around the country of these volunteers so that if they have permit like COVID permitting, if we can have events again and they want POW to be at a booth somewhere, then you as a volunteer can go and represent Protect Our Winters. It was interesting to hear your pathway that you were at the training center and you thought, I need to do something else with my platform. I think we're finding that athletes are really aligning with different causes that are important to them and, and really utilizing their public platforms. Yeah, definitely. I think it's, there's a shift in the last couple of years, I think, and it's exciting and it's positive and it's mostly exciting to see that 
non-athletes or spectators can kind of see us as not just these superstar athletes. We are human. Um, and I think that's important to remember. Before we get to some fun stuff to close it out, I want to get back to biathlon. It's April now. We have the Olympics coming up in Beijing in less than a year now. What is your plan for training and preparation, and how do you see the roadmap for yourself to get you to Beijing? Yeah, so I'll be living and training in Lake Placid again. We have a brand new facility across the street um, at Mount Van Hovenberg, uh, brand new roller ski track, brand new 30-point range, huge lodge with a weight room and I believe a ski treadmill. So I'm really excited because I've been training here for the last seven years or so, but this will kind of feel like a new year, I think, with just a, a new environment within my old environment. So I'm just going to continue following my training plan, listening to my body, trying to stay healthy and as physically fit as I can be going into the Olympic season. I'm also going to try to go into the season mentally prepared also for whatever the Olympic trial process might throw at me. <laughs> um, the stress of that and competing against your own teammates and that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, I'm overall excited to kind of see what happens this season. Um, definitely excited and nervous to see what the team naming happens for Beijing, but hopefully I'll see my name on that list. We'll see. Maddie, from having worked yourself from a young girl who was a swimmer in South Carolina to now a world-class biathlete, what's something that you've learned about yourself along that route? Hmm. That's a good question. <laughs> I had to think about that. I guess for me, I've just, I think over the years, I've just grown more into being my own self. And I think in the past, especially in high school, I kind of just draw into trying to be so much like other people. And so the last few years, I've definitely been trying to just embrace who I am and everyone's unique and just kind of accepting that and being happy with where I am. Well, Maddie, it's been a joy to talk to you, and we're going to close it out with a segment that I call On Target, a series of what I hope will be relatively simple and fun questions for you. And I'm going to kick <laughs> it off with one that I love asking people about. Pretty simple. What is your favorite biathlon venue that you've been to? Hmm. Well, I think the obvious answer is Antolt. I feel like that's everyone's answer, but it's just so nice. <laughs> okay, we'll go to another one. Uh, we're going to take you a little bit closer to home, maybe. What is your favorite backcountry ski tour? I did angel slides this winter with my boyfriend and his friends, and that was really fun. And what what is angel <laughs> it was slides? My first, um, it's these slides off of Wright Peak and in the Adirondack High Peaks, and it was my first time skiing a slide out in the backcountry, and so it was just a fun and challenging experience. Do you spend much time in the backcountry? I would like to spend more time in the backcountry, but racing kind of takes away from that. Takes away the big part of the season. Yeah. How about your favorite mountain bike ride? My favorite mountain bike ride? Honestly, the trails in Old Forge have improved a lot. So if you want to check them out, they are really fun. And the float trails, I think Toga Party is my favorite. Do you have a bike with you in Lake Placid? I do have a bike. You still have snow on the trails there? There's uh, some snow, but not really at all. Um, they're kind of muddy at the moment. Not totally dry. 
Matt, I know you have an interest in art and music, and let's go to the music side of things. What instruments, what musical instruments do you play? I can play the clarinet, the alto saxophone, and the piano. Have you ever thought of taking a saxophone on tour with you? <laughs> I mean, if someone was paying for all of my baggage fees, then maybe, <laughs> but no. <laughs> and that favorite place that's good for your soul in the Adirondacks, where do you like to go? Mm, I really like to go to Cascade Lakes. They are in between Lake Placid and Keene. And uh, when there aren't a lot of tourists around, they are very quiet and nice. Beautiful. And one last question. In one word, Maddie, what does biathlon represent to you? A challenge. A challenge. <laughs> That's technically two words, I guess, but you know. <laughs> I'll take it. Maddie Fano, thank you so much for joining us uh, from Lake Placid. We wish you the best of luck this summer and into the fall and hope to see you in Beijing. Thanks a lot. Maddie Fanoff is a great U.S. biathlon story. In particular, I'm really appreciative of her work on climate change with Protect Our Winners. If you have not already done so, please check out the IBU's new Biathlon Climate Challenge announced on Earth Day. We hope you're enjoying Heartbeat. Even though the season is finished, we'll continue with regular episodes. If you want to get Heartbeat sent directly to you as soon as it's out, simply hit the subscribe button. You'll find Heartbeat on all podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, and more. We'll be back with another episode of Heartbeat soon. I'm your host, Tom Kelly. For all of us at U.S. Biathlon, thanks for joining us on Heartbeat.